Come on in, please. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, we have kind of like a barricaded no, no, uh, this is just structure. <laughs> so I am like such a huge fan of the podcast. So oh this is God. like this is like a dream come true. Oh wow, it's like that's okay. Off my so list. this is your um, okay. seat of honor. Great. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. In this episode, Mac Gazarian and I interview Daryl Lee about his new book, which is entitled The Universal Enemy, Jihad, Empire, and the Challenge of Solidarity, with Stanford University Press. The book is based on ethnographic and archival research on the Bosnian Jihad, in which a few thousand Muslim volunteers from the Arab world and elsewhere went to Bosnia-Herzegovina after the dissolution of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. There, they fought as part of the three-way nationalist war between 1992 and 1995, involving Bosniaks, Serbs, and Croats, a conflict in which Muslims suffered many mass atrocities. The book also deals with the long legal and analytic shadows cast by the global war on terror. One place where we can start to see these shadows is the immigrant detention center in the Lukovica neighborhood on the outskirts of Sarajevo, which Daryl first visited in 2008. When I started going, things might be different now. I had to go through the woods, um, sort of up this unmarked path, and eventually the road kind of is no longer paved and turns into a gravel path. And you see this set of buildings, a small compound, uh, surrounded by a high chain-link fence. Over the facility are two flags, the flag of the state of Bosnia-Herzegovina and the flag of the European Union. And this is where you know you're in some kind of special facility. My name is Daryl Lee. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology and a lecturer in the law school at the University of Chicago. Um, I'm an anthropologist and also an attorney. I'm licensed in New York and Illinois. There is a, a structure, I think it's two stories tall, painted in pastel colors. It looks like it's trying to be friendly, which is not to say that it looks like it is friendly. It looks like the color of peaches and cream ice cream. Building this prison was one of the many conditions that Bosnia-Herzegovina had to fulfill in order to get on the track of accession to the European Union. So in order to prove their worthiness as a potentially civilized European state, they had to play their role in manning the ramparts of Europe. And this prison was sort of originally envisioned to be a place to hold migrants, especially migrants caught crossing the border. One of the ironies of the situation is that the first people who were put in the prison were not migrants who had recently crossed the border. They were Arabs who had been living in Bosnia for the most part over a decade. Because they had participated in the war on sort of um, religiously or Islamically pious terms, they were suspected of uh, being terrorists or extremists. And the U.S. essentially wanted all of these suspicious Arabs deported as quickly as possible. The facility essentially was turned into a local version of Guantanamo. In some ways, the facility is a narrative endpoint to the many paths people took to fight in Bosnia. But these questions about Muslims and mobility began for Daryl many years before. One of the backstories of the project is I was in the Gaza Strip on 9-11. I was working there. And uh, a few months later, I remember very vividly uh, the news footage of people, uh, the first detainees being brought to Guantanamo. It occurred to me that we didn't really have a good narrative or a good framework for understanding the presence of non 
Afghan Muslim travelers in the country, right? They're, you know, in the dominant understandings of mobility, it's the West versus the rest. At that time, the different kinds of what we might call South-South mobility or connection were not particularly well understood or exposed, certainly not in kind of media and policy sort of discussions. And even in terms of the Western Academy, it wasn't as developed as, as it is now. So my first thought was just sort of, you know, there must be some way of understanding what all these folks were doing in Afghanistan, aid workers and refugees and people moving in all sorts of different ways. But of course, the dominant narrative was, if you are an Arab in Afghanistan on 9-11, you must be a member of Al-Qaeda. I had this set of questions kind of percolating in the back of my head, even before I started the project. But then while I was in law school, sort of concurrently with this dissertation project, I was assigned to a clinical team that was defending um, a gentleman who was held at Guantanamo who had also been in Bosnia in the 90s. Um, So I had this background and interest already, and it just happened to be that I was assigned to working on this case um, as part of a legal team representing a gentleman called Ahmed Zuhair, a Saudi national who who had been kidnapped in Lahore and sent to uh, to Afghanistan and then then to, uh, to Guantanamo Bay. And it's these questions that guided the universal enemy which in a memorable tweet, Daryl described as a weirdo book that will surely not be everyone's cup of tea. Part of the reason he said this was that he was taking on so many concepts that are taken for granted. From very early on, one of the goals that I set for myself was to write a book about jihad that didn't suck. You know, we're familiar with critiques, you know, around Orientalism and sheer sort of ignorance and racism concerning Muslims. And that's obviously, you know, a major characteristic of a lot of this literature. But that's not the only problem. I think a lot of the writing on jihad doesn't simply suffer from ignorance about Islam and Muslims, but actually suffers from a politics that is incapable of appreciating radical movements. Um, This is a book that is really written for the left and not for liberals, and also written for Muslims in some way, right? Or insofar as there's any overlap in these categories. I think that's really kind of what this is trying to do. So I'm not trying to explain how the war on terror can be better fought or to reassure audiences that, you know, Muslims are good people too, um, or to, you know, stoke the fears, you know, to stoke the the paranoia and racism, obviously. Um, Yeah. So I think for me, it was about really Um, asking myself, you know, how can I write a book that takes radical politics seriously? Constructing jihadism as a specific ideological project or as a specific political movement really doesn't make any sense. Um, Because in order to do that, you essentially have to select one of the many different versions of jihad that folks are debating and to somehow elevate that into a conceptual category over all others. So one of the aims is to historicize the Bosnian Jihad as a particular radical movement rather than enclose it within some vague category of jihadism shorn of social and political context. He takes the same critical approach to a number of concepts related to mobility. One of the lines of attack or intervention that the book is trying to do is to kind of blow up a lot of the discussions pun intended, around um, radicalization, extremism, terrorism, foreign fighters, and so on. So this category of the foreign fighter really enters into the American public discourse uh, during the, the U.S. occupation of Iraq. In this sort of worldview of the, of the counterterrorism expert, right, the, the foreign fighter is the, the really scary person, the one who requires the special attention because they are rootless and they are exercising violence outside of nation-state boundaries. You know, your standard imagination is, why would a person in country A 
travel all the way to country B that they have no previous tie to and sacrifice themselves. They must be crazy, right? And we need to call, we name that process of craziness radicalization. Now, the flip side is for those who are in this world of, of jihad participation, it's a mirror idea of, yeah, they traveled to all the way to this other place purely out of their feelings of solidarity and their valor. And the fact that they didn't know anything about Bosnia is actually part of what's to be counted in their favor, right? So both of these narratives assume a kind of nation-state ontology. And that was something that I really wanted to um, to disrupt in writing this book. And part of doing that was really looking at the histories of mobility that linked Bosnia and Yugoslavia to other parts of the world. One of those networks was, of course, Yugoslavia's very central role in the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the mobilities um, between Yugoslavia, Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, during the period before the war, mm -hmm. so that we can get an idea of what, what are these people doing here? How did they get there? When fighters and aid workers and other folks came from um, Arab countries in sort of solidarity with Bosnia during the in the early 90s, I just started with a practical question of like, well, you know, how did they get around? Who were their interpreters, right? They didn't just land from a spaceship and say, take me to your leader, right? There had to be some pre-existing infrastructure of interconnection. And one of those was the presence of students from the Arab world who came in the context of the non-aligned movement. And they acted as interpreters. And many of them were not practicing or even anti-religious but some were religious, and especially some of the Syrians I knew had been Muslim Brotherhood uh, sympathizers or members who really came to Yugoslavia in the mid to late 80s, um, fresh from kind of the uprisings and massacres in, in Syria in the early 80s. Um, and th so that was just one of multiple networks of mobility that the book tries to highlight. We wanted to talk a little bit about the Bosnian War mm -hmm. and a get a little background on the war itself, uh, basics of who, what, where, when. And then also talk a little bit about the Muslim forces in the Bosnian army. The potted version is, of course, the in the early 1990s, um, the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which was a communist state that also was organized along national lines, right? Because it had six constituent republics. And each of these republics had a kind of quasi-nation-state character, right? So you had the Republic of Serbia, which had the Serbs as a kind of the assigned national group to it, right? In Croatia for Croats. Bosnia was um, unusual because it was the, uh, a republic that didn't have one clearly assigned national group that sort of owned it, if you will, right? It was a, it was a state of Muslim Serbs and Croats alike. And also, there was not a clear demographic majority for any particular national group. So Bosnian Muslims in the last um, Yugoslav census before the war were a plurality of the population. And so what you have across Yugoslavia is this dynamic of nationalism that's trying to create kind of majoritarian space, right? And a lot of this is also accelerated and encouraged by larger sort of structural forces, right? So the international financial institutions, the Western states are also putting a lot of pressure on Yugoslavia, encouraging secession in some moments, but unification in other moments. So I don't want to make it sound like it's entirely an internal kind of thing. But um, essentially what plays out on the ground is some of these republics start seceding from Yugoslavia. And just as in Bosnia, there wasn't one clearly majority group. In Yugoslavia, there wasn't one clear majority group. But among the various national groups, the Serbs were considered the strongest. And what happens is Serb nationalist movement takes power in Serbia 
led by Slobodan Milosevic. And we have a process of, of what I think of as sort of implosion from the center, right? So it's not like your typical situation where you have a, a central state and then some peripheral group that wants to secede. It's also that even in the center of the country, there is a group that is taking over that is no longer committed to the Yugoslav project necessarily, but will still sometimes invoke it when it suits its purposes, right? We have this interesting outcome where during the war, Bosnian Muslims are, of course, seeking solidarity, both from the liberal West and also from the broader Muslim world. But the Serb, Serb nationalist movements that are engaged in anti-Muslim violence in Bosnia and elsewhere are also drawing on ties through the non-aligned movement with countries in the Arab world, right? So very strong relations with Saddam Hussein, with Assad, with Gaddafi, arms deals and things like this. So I think we need to resist this sort of clash of civilizations narrative as well. So there is this irony where Yugoslavia in the non-aligned movement fostered ties with predominantly Muslim countries and used its Muslim sort of ulama and clergy in doing so, and that those ties actually helped set the stage for their diplomatic outreach and, and arms procurement networks, even as they were engaged in violence against Muslims during the 90s. And again, those were also networks that helped facilitate the jihad, right? So there are all these unexpected historical contingencies that are contradictory legacies of Yugoslav socialism and, and the non-aligned movement. I wonder if you could talk more about Yugoslavia under communism, just, just so we can kind of set the groundwork for yeah. how things change in the 80s and 90s. Both the Islamist solidarity literature and the liberal humanitarian literature kind of assumed that there was just this, these were communists, they were atheists, they were repressing religious movements, including Islam, end of story. And of course, there is a lot of truth to that. But the, uh, the important thing about Yugoslavia is that the state really had two very different axes along which it interpolated and reconstituted Muslimness or Islam. So the first axis, and the one that's gotten a lot more attention, is Muslim as a basis for national identity, right? So Yugoslavia, and again, one of the myths too is that Yugoslavia was a communist state that didn't have nationalism, and then suddenly when it fell apart, you know, I think there's many wonderful historians who have shown that no, nationalism was one constitutional principle under uh, sort of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, and that, you know, nationalist um, categories were, uh, you know, kept alive and reconstituted under state socialism. But anyway, so the Muslim category in Bosnia as a national category began to get more official recognition really through the 60s and the 70s onward. And these are the people who during the war are mostly called Bosnian Muslims. So we're talking about folks who speak the language that is uh, commonly known as Serbo-Croatian or Bosnian-Serbian-Croatian or what have you, who have you know sort of an affinity to the geographical space of Bosnia-Herzegovina. They were called Muslims with a capital M, Muslimani, under Yugoslav census categories as a national category. And really, since the war, they're much more commonly known as Bosniaks. Um, and this is a term that has an older history as well, so I don't want to imply that it just came out recently, but it's become much more common in the past couple of decades. These folks were only half of the total Muslim population of Yugoslavia, right? So the other way of understanding Islam and Muslims under Yugoslavia was as a confessional category, not as a, not as a national one. So people who, people of the Muslim faith or who had come from backgrounds of the Muslim faith belonged to many different national categories in Yugoslavia, right? Especially Albanians, Macedonians, you know, folks living in, in Croatia and Serbia as well. And the management of Islam as a kind of confessional category 
in Yugoslavia was done through the uh, so-called Islamic community or Is- Islamska Zajnica. And this body actually emerges from the period of Austro-Hungarian rule in Bosnia, right? It's an institution that's designed to manage the affairs of Islam in a non-Muslim state, right, with the, with the departure of the Ottoman Empire. And this, of course, raises all of the original questions of secularism, right? How do you delineate religion or Islamic religion as a special category? You know, there's a very rich history of um, Austro-Hungarian imperial Islamic governance that uh, deserves more attention. Also, the, the architecture, you know, they were really um, engaged in kind of developing architectural styles that were kind of Orientalist, neo-Moorish, that they thought of as part of a, a, a sort of um, historical continuity. So I remember, for example, one of the early um, leaders of the jihad, this uh, uh, Saudi citizen, um, Abu Abdulaziz, you know, he goes to the city of Travnik, which was actually the, the capital of Ottoman Eyalet of, Bo- of Bosnia for a long time. And he talks about this sort of um, madrasa that's there. And he's like, oh, you know, this is one of the great examples of the Muslim heritage of this country that was suppressed under socialism, and we need to help the Bosnians recover this and so on. But what he doesn't realize is that this madrasa was actually built by the Austro-Hungarians in that kind of neo-Moorish style, and the, the architect was a Catholic. For the folks that I follow who fought in Bosnia, many of them are, you know, what we would call Salafis. And they are in a little bit of a dilemma where, um, on the one hand, they are very critical of the Ottoman legacy. Of course, they reject the Hanafi Madhab and so on. Um, but at the same time, many of the uh, signs that they point to for a kind of authentic Muslimness of the Bosnian population that they want to nurture and bring back also grow out of the Ottoman and post-Ottoman experience. It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby, back with Matt Gazarian, interviewing Daryl Lee. There are many Bosnian Muslims who used the term jihad in relationship to the war. And oftentimes, this was a way of saying that the war was not only justified as a nationalist endeavor, but it had religious kind of sanction behind it. And this was, I think, uh, the way that the term was used by many people throughout the world and throughout Muslim-majority countries. The fighters who I'm specifically focusing on had a maybe narrower definition. For them, jihad was not just an armed conflict that was religiously okay or religiously sanctioned, but it also required a praxis that was grounded in certain norms of piety, right? And that was one of the sources of tension between them and the Bosnian army, which was predominantly Muslim. Um, and back to your question, Matthew, I think people are, are generally familiar with you know this idea that many Bosnian Muslims were not necessarily practicing, that for them, being Muslim was a national category first and not necessarily a category of, of piety. But there was a, a small number of Bosnian Muslims who were engaged in kind of a revivalist movement even before the war. And they 
decided that they needed to participate in the war, not only as good Muslim nationalists, but also as good Muslim believers. Um, so these folks uh, formed a set of militias called the Muslim forces, right? And it's important because oftentimes when people talk about the Muslim forces, they're referring to the Bosnian army, which is predominantly Muslim, but in a nationalist sense, right? And also included non-Muslims, right? So when we talk about the Muslim forces, capital M, capital F, this is a, a few army units in a much larger formation. These folks become the natural interlocutors and allies for the Salafi activists who arrived during the war. Again, like when, you know, when people like Abu Abdul Aziz... The smaller group of units called the Muslim Forces, capital M, capital M. Exactly, Within the larger Bosnian army. Exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, this is really important because this is... I feel like so much of the discussion around Bosnia and the West is for very good reason embedded in this kind of frankly racist pressure to sort of really reassure everyone that Bosnian Muslims are not fundamentalists and not, you know, that they, they're also white and they eat pork and they drink. And, you know, th- th- there's a lot of problems with this in that overall picture, which is, you know, which is true. Like, obviously, this idea of painting the Bosnian Muslim nationalist cause as this fundamentalist, I mean, that's extremely problematic, extremely racist. But I think Notwithstanding all of that, yes, there is this relatively limited marginal phenomenon during the war of these pious military units, many of whom are actually Naqshbandi Sufis. So you have this interesting outcome where Salafi Mujahideen come and they end up having more in common with the Naqshbandis there than with the rest of the population around them. So because we're used to this narrative of the Sufis and the Salafis having all this beef, and they, you know there, there were tensions. But at the same time, there was this idea of, well, most of the people around us don't even really practice, right? So, so the idea that they wanted to have their pietistic practice alongside or connected to their military work was something that they actually had in common. Mm -hmm. But then one of the ironies is that a lot of the discourse around so-called fundamentalism and terrorism and jihad ends up confusing these Bosnian Sufi uh, jihad fighters for the Arab Salafis, right? Because Sufis also use the language of jihad. Right. There's, and again, this is why the jihadism category ends up, you know, weighing in on these intra-Muslim discussions in ways that's totally unhelpful. So the Muslim forces, capital M, capital F, which happen to be very small, relatively speaking, they connect with the Arabs who arrive in the beginning of the war. And there's this idea that religious education and sort of what they call a, like a sahwa, like an awakening, right, are important activities that must happen alongside fighting and are actually necessary to create the kinds of true, pious, and brave Muslims who will actually, you know, successfully wage the war and, and defend Bosnia from, you know, ethnic cleansing and mass atrocities and genocide. So they're, they're all sort of mixed up at the beginning of the war. And over time, there's a decision to, uh, to segregate them. And a special unit, Aldr um, al-Mujahideen in Bosnian or Khatib al-Mujahideen in Arabic, gets set up where most of the foreign Muslim volunteers are concentrated. But even this unit is actually majority Bosnian. It's like 55%, 45%, something like that. So the, for all of these different agendas, they converge in creating this special army unit where you have Salafis uh, in the leadership fighting under the, lead, uh, fighting under the command of Bosnian generals who are not necessarily practicing and may not even identify as Muslim, and who are mostly erstwhile communists. Katiba del Mujahideen, they're they're part of the Bosnian army, right? Yeah. Like this is this is not a non-state entity. So mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about the nature of this image of the rootless foreign fighter, mm-hmm. and then the fact that they are very pragmatic. Yeah. So it, they are a state actor, and they aren't in this funny way, right? So they they raise their own money from abroad, and uh, they choose their own leadership, and they don't always take 
orders very well from the Bosnian army. So there's a fair bit of negotiation. But yes, at the same time, they are considered a part of the army. They want the benefits of army membership, but they have their own very distinctive uh, sort of training regimen, right? So all of the Bosnian recruits have to go through this 40-day training course where they do this, you know, where they try to teach them Islam as that in the way that they think is proper, right? And they're also explicitly speaking to an imaginary of the ummah, right, in their fundraising and media materials. And they talk about themselves as sort of fighting under two flags, right, under the banner of Islam and under the the flag of the nation state of Bosnia-Herzegovina. And for them, there isn't really a contradiction in this sense. There are tensions, clearly. And one of the points that the book tries to make is that, you know, we have to be much more nuanced in our thinking around universalism. And I mean, I think this is not like a lot of people do recognize this, but it's not always made explicit that universalism and nationalism are not fundamentally um, opposed categories, right? That all universalist projects need to find a way to get enacted in a specific place and time. And that's perfectly compatible with nationalism. You take universalism as a broader lens for the book, as a way to read jihad. Mm -hmm. And you refer to jihad as a universalist project. What exactly do you mean by universalism? And how does jihad fit in it? What are other examples of universalisms Mm -hmm. that may compete with or overlap with jihad? That's a great question. And just to circle back to one of our previous points, it's this jihad and others like it that I'm thinking of as a universalist project. Because again, I think you know, there are so many different activities that people participate in and call jihad. So I'm already kind of, you know, I want us to not sort of make claims about jihad as such. But these armed campaigns that involve transnational mobilization in the name of a worldwide Muslim community or ummah, right, this category of activity that's called jihad, yes, I do think of them as universalist projects. And I think it's helpful to do so because it draws attention to the fact that they have to process other forms of difference, national, doctrinal, racial, ethnic, and so on, um, which has been widely overlooked in a lot of... There is some literature in kind of the security studies stuff, but it's very instrumental. It sort of asks the question of, you know, do the foreign fighters embed themselves well in the locals and when are they alienating them and so on? And that it's a much, you know, it's a much broader um, set of questions around how does, you know, how do you enact these kinds of solidarity projects where you've arrived from so far away and make some kind of home or some kind of accommodation in the local population with all of the messiness and tensions and sometimes rejection and coercion that comes along with it. So, you know, sometimes people kind of hear this word universalism and they think of it as uh as like a, an apologia or a compliment that, you know, this is, jihad is a good thing. I think it's important to be clear that as an anthropologist, for us, universalism is more often a dirty word. It's a category of suspicion, right? And what I'm trying to do in this book is to treat universalism as, as a kind of category for ethnographic analysis. So rather than talking about human rights or liberalism or Islam as these sort of big free-floating categories that we can slap onto different phenomena that are happening in the world. I'm much more interested in using the lens of universalism to understand smaller everyday activities, including in this war, right? So for example, these fighters who come, they don't share the same language. How are they actually managing the practical aspects of fighting in the name of, you know, saying we are part of the same global community, but actually like getting their stuff done, right? And so for me, universalism is a way to think about those sorts of activities, but to connect them to larger scales of analysis, right? So how do we, again, these are larger questions that many scholars are struggling with, right? How do we connect the local to the global and so on and so forth? So for me, universalism is a way of doing that in the sense that I really focus on the practices of universalism and the fact that it involves processing differences in many ways. Too often, 
at least in the in the discussions that I'm familiar with, universalism is often equated with homogenization, right? When of course every universalist project, if we're talking about you know human rights, international law, presupposes some forms of local difference, right? And it's just a question of who gets to call the shots over which differences are okay and which ones aren't. Well, and on the question of who gets to call the shots, it seems like sovereignty is also an important concept here. And is that where these questions of practicality and who gets to call the shots come into play? Yeah, so I think sovereignty and the nation state form, it's not only one vehicle for universalist projects, but it's arguably the most common one, you know, from probably the 19th century onwards. And um, so the book makes a distinction between internationalisms as a particular kind of universalist project that are organized through the nation state form and others, right? So the jihad in Bosnia, I think of as not an internationalism. It is able to work with and engage with Bosnian sovereignty, but it is also really, really careful to ensure that they are able to appeal to sources of authority that are not grounded in the nation state, right? And that's why they don't, they might, they, you know, the language that they use is that they are, you know, they're sort of collaborating with the Bosnian army in administrative issues, but they're not recognizing that they have supremacy over them in ordering violence. One source that you brought up that I thought expressed this in such a nice way was a pamphlet for people who wanted to figure out how to come to Bosnia. And number one, uh, in terms of the items that you needed to make sure you had to come and fight was number one is devotion to God. And then number 13 is obtain an international driver's license. <laughs> yeah. And ha- somewhere halfway in that list is something like knowledge of the local customs, right? So there's this, again, with universalist projects, there's sometimes they valorize the local because, hey, everyone wants to feel like they're grounded and accountable, but they always want to retain criteria for overriding local decisions, right? We can think about this in terms of repugnancy clauses and colonial legal regimes, right? But we can also think of it in terms of the jihad projects here where they encountered various forms of uh, local custom and also local re- religious practice that they that they didn't like and that they're very critical of. And of course, the Bosnian um, Islamic establishment pushed back against that, right? So there were all sorts of lively debates between the Bosnian ulama and the, the sort of Arab mujahideen and aid workers who came over um, questions of fiqh and so on. I wanted to get at some of the overlaps in two of the universalisms that you mm-hmm. deal with in the book with this jihad in Bosnia mm-hmm. and humanitarian work in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. You talk both about how personnel would kind of move back and forth Mm -hmm. between these Mm -hmm. and also how as universalisms, they also kind of structurally, you know, the jihad in Bosnia and the humanitarians in Bosnia Mm -hmm. had some parallel characteristics. Mm -hmm. Could you just talk about that a little? Yeah, no, that's great. And And it reminds me that another really important point here is that when we think of universalism from the bottom up rather than from the top down, you know, we we stop doing this thing of personifying the West or liberalism or Islam and so on. So just as nationalisms are diverse and take many, many different forms, pan-Islamisms take many, many different forms. And the book tries to show how these folks who were, you know, mobilizing for jihad were far from the only um, pan-Islamic kind of actors on the Bosnian scene. And a lot of the sort of you know, uh, terrorism expert literature on Bosnia has sort of operated by essentially conflating all of these things together. So for example, there were, as you mentioned, Islamic humanitarian organizations or Islamic relief organizations that were operating in Bosnia. And yeah, there were individuals who moved back and forth. And that has given rise to this narrative of of suspicion, right, that they were just providing cover for jihad and so on. And that's not 
entirely baseless, but I think it loses sight of the fact that for a lot of these folks, um, what was important was solidarity and the methods of solidarity might be armed, they might involve relief work, and there wasn't this irreconcilable opposition between the two, right? These were just two different means to the same end, and there was no shame in saying, yes, I'm a Mujahid and I'm also an aid worker, right? So it wasn't that they were using aid as a cover necessarily. In some cases, there were people who really were delivering aid but wanted to pose as soldiers because they wanted some of the um, you know, machismo credit that came with that. The other important um, uh, sort of pan-Islamist, if you will, project that makes an appearance in the book is, of course, uh, the role of Muslims in the UN peacekeeping force in Bosnia. So UNPROFOR, UN Protection Force, was the largest UN peacekeeping force ever at that time, and I think possibly ever, ever. And it was 40,000 troops sent by national armies, managed by the UN, and a very significant number of them came from predominantly Muslim countries. Um, especially Pakistan and Egypt in Bosnia. And, you know, these were, uh, these folks understood themselves as working in Bosnia, both as good upstanding members of the international community and the liberal international order, but also as engaged in pan-Islamic solidarity as helping their Muslim brothers in Bosnia. And if we want to talk about foreign Muslim fighters in Bosnia, there were far more of these peacekeepers than there were of Mujahideen. So again, it's one more example of this idea that practice or bottom-up um, notion of universalism helps us disaggregate um, the idea of Islam from, you know, like the jihad project versus other pan-Islamist projects. There were all sorts of competing pan-Islamist projects. If you look at the newspapers of the Bosnian sort of of the Islamska Zajnica publications, you know, there's all of these reports about solidarity delegations from Egypt, from Turkey, from Iran. Um, Iran was also very involved in the war. Um, Hezbollah lost some people there. Um, so there were, you know, just as there were all sorts of people coming from the West, you know, who projected on, you know, onto Bosnia, a fantasy of, of saviorism, right? There were many doing so from the Muslim world with many different agendas. And of course, that includes Muslims who were based in the West, right? That's also a very significant part of the scene. So I guess one of the interesting things toward the end of the book is thinking about what happens to these people uh, in the global war on terror. And you've alluded to this, this point of Muslim mobility being criminalized. And it seems like there's a big shift in terms of the U.S. realizes that Guantanamo Bay is a liability mm-hmm. because it's a, a visible symbol of something mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're moving towards something else. Could you talk about how this change manifests itself for people who had gone to fight in Bosnia? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think the takeaway is that we tend to think of Guantanamo as a stand-in for the war on terror, and it is in many ways kind of an exception for the reasons that you alluded to. Um, And in fact, under the Obama administration, the Republican Congress passed laws um, requiring the government to give Congress advance notice before releasing anyone, right? Because they had this idea that, you know, anyone who got out of Guantanamo who did something bad, they could then politicize that against Obama. Um, But one of the upshots of that is Guantanamo, from the point of view of national security elites, is indeed a liability, not only because of the, you know, the damage that it does to American standing in the world, but also because there's no flexibility. You bring people there, they have some access to federal courts. So the courts are kind of meddling. Congress is kind of meddling. And you can't get rid of people very easily because then you have to figure out where to send them. And this is why we're stuck with all of these Yemenis who are there who the U.S. can't find anyone to sort of warehouse. The U.S. basically stopped sending people to Guantanamo in 2003. I interpret this as a very momentary kind of freak out from the national security state because their typical pattern would be to invade a country and then just use the prisons that are there and put people in them. And 
the situation with the Afghan state and the invasion of Afghanistan was such that it was not practical. And there was um, an uprising at a prison, more like a fort that was repurposed into a prison that was held by the Northern Alliance. This is near Mazar-e-Sharif, right? The Kalai Jangi incident where a white CIA officer was killed. Prisoners held the fort for a number of days. They had to be um, defeated through air power, actually. So it was essentially an aerial massacre of prisoners there. My Again, this is speculative, but my sense is that that was the moment where the U.S. realized that they needed to, to detain people somewhere far away from the battlefield. Um, and that's part of how Guantanamo kind of came. And of course, you know, Guantanamo had this history of, you know, Haitians being held there and so on. And there was a plan to send Kosovo refugees there too during the 1999 bombing of Yugoslavia, although that plan was never implemented. So Guantanamo has really loomed large in the imagination of U.S. carceral practices in the war on terror. It's, yeah, for all the reasons we just mentioned, it's, it's a liability. And the U.S. is much more comfortable taking people and sending them to prisons that are run by client states, where on the face of it, it just looks like a purely routine, administrative, domestic matter. One thing that's that has also escaped notice is that very, very, very few Egyptians ever ended up in Guantanamo. And if you know anything about the scene of kind of pan-Islamic activists in Afghanistan on the eve of 9-11 and Al-Qaeda and armed groups and non-armed groups, you know, Egyptians are a major part of the scene. So my own speculation here is that most of those folks just got sent straight back to Egypt. That, you know, the, the stronger the ties were with the U.S. Um, intelligence apparatus, the more you could just ship people around very quietly and yeah, and Guantanamo was basically like a massive distraction for that. So there is this weird way where Guantanamo was kind of this a site for interstitial folks who kind of couldn't be readily slotted into the nation state system, but then because of that became kind of a massive liability. So Lukovica is actually much more typical of the way the U.S. carceral network works, right? So just regular prisons all around the world and U.S. client states where people are just sort of shuttling back and forth and there's just much less attention being paid to them. Um, I have to ask about the the cover. Okay. So uh, there's this really wonderful drawing by Omar Khoury depicting a battle from 1995 in which the Mujahideen are advancing on positions of uh, Serb forces, Serbian forces. And instead of firing on the advancing Mujahideen, they start firing on angels in the sky. And I noticed in the acknowledgments, you described it as an image that conveys the sense of wonder and mischief I have often felt while viewing the jihad through Chinese eyes. And I wonder if you could talk more about the wonder and mischief. (laughs) Well, of course, I don't want to treat the subject lightly, but I think as I was completing the book, I was panicking slightly about the idea of the cover image, because, of course, this is a topic that has received all sorts of sensationalist attention, right? So one more book with like a Kalashnikov or a guy with like, you know, a kofia wrapped around his head, like, no, I would rather shoot myself. And I think oftentimes academics who are wary of engaging in these sort of sensationalist debates, they'll they'll do the safe thing, right? Well, let's get some abstract art, something super like not that, right? So that was sort of what I was afraid would end up happening. But I, you know, very fortunately uh, discovered the work of this wonderful Lebanese artist, uh, Omar Khoury, through my friend and colleague at the University of Chicago, Renaud Hayek, he had done a series of drawings about the Lebanese civil war, kind of in this style of Silk Road or vaguely sort of Chinese. It looks like a miniature. If you didn't, if you weren't paying attention to the details, you just kind of looked at it, it would just look like a miniature from Balkh or something. Exactly. And so for me, it was, it made sense. um, One, because it was just different. It didn't fall into the, the two categories that I just mentioned that I was afraid of. And also, yeah, I think, 
you know, it's not super explicit in the book, but my own kind of positionality as a sort of um, person of Chinese origin and an Asian American scholar working in, in Middle East studies and in other places where I'm kind of racially out of place has always inflected my field work and the kinds of questions that I've been asking and also sort of the way that I've navigated these issues in the academy. So I thought that the aesthetics also sort of spoke to that. And when you write a book, you start wondering if, like, how personal is it to you? And are you the only person who could have written such a book or not? Which has nothing to do with whether or not the book is actually any good. <laughs> That's a totally separate issue. But I think if you do arrive at this point where you have a sense of what makes the book specifically yours and and connected to you, that, you know, that does involve sort of interesting questions around self-exploration that are hopefully not solipsistic, but actually make the book a more self-aware kind of intervention. Thanks so much, Daryl. Great, thank you. It was really a pleasure to be with you. Of course, please check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a bibliography and other information about Daryl Lee and his book. Please also visit our Facebook group where you can join our over 30,000 followers and post any questions or comments. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really yeah, that's great. Excuse me. Um, Yeah, I hope it doesn't suck. Yeah, I hope it doesn't suck. So anyway, all right, thanks, thanks a lot. Sir. See you, thanks. Should we go get Chris?